invite you to turn in your Bible to Jonah chapter 3. We've been uh, going through the book of Jonah this summer, and the Lord willing, we'll finish chapter 3 today and hopefully wrap things up next uh, Sunday morning. It's on page 775, if you're using one of the Bibles from the pews. Jonah is a very brief four-chapter book. It only covers two pages here in, in these pew Bibles. Begin reading in verse 1 of Jonah chapter 3. Hear God's word. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days! And Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So ends the reading of God's word. Do you desire, perhaps even pray for, the Lord to do a mighty work in our land where not only hundreds but even thousands and millions of people are brought to new life in Christ? In other words, do you pray for a spiritual awakening? If you do, and if you are tempted to think that it cannot happen, then there is hope in this passage for you. Because this passage tells us, it's what most Bible scholars look back on, as the greatest revival that ever took place. And it happened in an odd place. It happened 153 miles northwest of Baghdad, in Iraq, of all places, in the ancient city of Nineveh. And the evangelist whom God used was Jonah. But we do not typically think of Jonah as an evangelist. We think of him as a prophet who was swallowed by a fish, who almost drowned in the belly of that fish or before the fish swallowed him. We think of him as a wayward man. We think of him as a man who refused to do the will of God. But that is only half of the story. And so here in chapters 3 and 4, we see the other half of the side of Jonah at least the part where God really blessed him, as he had a ministry the likes of which the world has never known. And it took place in a brief three-day period. If you were here last week, John Kinzer preached on the opening verses of chapter 3. I'll not go back over that. But just a quick review in verses 1 and 2, Jonah is recommissioned. The problem with Jonah had been the place where God had told him to go, to Nineveh, hundreds of miles to the northeast, 
At that time, Assyria, the nation of Assyria, was marshalling their forces against Israel. It was a land that inspired terror in Israel and really in everyone else. So when God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, he did not want to go. Basically, his attitude was, let them die. But God's heart was moved over the people of Nineveh. So he told Jonah to go to that wicked city. Now look at verse 3 when it describes Nineveh as an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Archaeology today helps us to see that Nineveh was indeed a very great city. It has been, for the most part, unearthed, so much so that we are able to see that in the words of Scripture, it was a great or a large city. From what we can tell, there would have been in the neighborhood of 750,000 people, perhaps, that lived there at that time. An immense city at that time in history. It was bounded by two huge walls. There was a wall that ran two and a half miles along the Tigris River. That was the inner wall. And then that wall continued eight more miles in its perimeter around the inner part of the city. Then there, were, there was the outer wall, which was 75 miles in circumference. It was 50 feet high. It was 40 feet wide. Three chariots rode abreast atop that wall 24 hours a day. So just try and imagine that. So when Jonah... Chapter 3 says it, would a, a great, it was a great city, a three days walk. It was just that. If a person was to begin at the outer gate of ancient Nineveh and take a walk, a leisurely walk, through the streets of the city of Nineveh to get to the other side, it would have taken three days. I imagine that the grapevine preceded him before he arrived there where he had been deposited by the fish on the shore of the Mediterranean, it would have been 500 miles to get to Nineveh. And when he gets there, he gets a third of the way through the city, and he begins to preach, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. We pretty much believe that was just the synopsis of his message. But his message certainly was one that they were under certain doom that it was coming. Verses 5 to 10 tell us that Nineveh repents, and God has compassion. The people put on sackcloth, we find in verses 5 and 6. Sackcloth was perhaps like burlap. To wear such and to sit then in ashes or in dust was a public declaration of contrition and a belief that the message was true, and we find that the king did this in verses 7 to 9. He not only lowered himself, kings didn't do this in that day, he caused people to sit in dust and ashes. He didn't sit in dust and ashes. So he was greatly affected by this. And he called for a public fast for everyone to call urgently on God and for them to turn from their evil ways. What was it that brought this change? Was it the fact that this strange Jewish man had showed up just to preach? No, it tells us in verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. That's what brought the change. The day we speak of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that ushers us into God's family. Now I want you to grasp what a large spiritual awakening this was. <clears throat> Let's say, just to use an analogy we might better grasp, that a man this morning was in St. Simon's, and he begins to preach to the people there. 
And he makes his way to Jekyll Island, then over to Sea Island, and then back to Brunswick, and then up to Savannah, and then to Statesboro, and then to Dublin, and then to Jeffersonville, and then to Macon, and Forsyth, and back to Warner Robins. Now, if I've got my math right, that is about the same number of people that probably heard Jonah, and every person in those cities would have believed. Every single one. And we think that's impossible. That's why this is such a huge miracle. That is a true awakening. Sometimes we use the word revival to talk about Christians being revived to their first love. I tend to like the term awakening because that is more the initial exposure to the gospel and people being awakened and coming to faith. But it was miraculous. And then what happens? That's what happened on earth. Verse 10 tells us what happened in heaven. I'll read it again. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, if you think deeply about that verse, it may be troubling. Did God flip-flop? I mean, is this, I thought the Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Looks like God changed his mind. The King James Version uses the word that he repented. Well, how do we handle this? In Scripture, this is called an anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. That is, it is an expression in human terms as an act of God. Using human terms to describe God. We see this all through the Psalms. For example, in Psalm 2, it says the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and so forth. And then it says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Well, we don't believe God has a voice where he, he laughs, literally belly, belly laughs. It's a figurative statement talking about the majesty of God and how he looks and he sees this. And so that is an anthropomorphism. So when verse 10 says that God changed his mind, it is not as though he was surprised, as though, oh, I didn't expect that to happen. I guess I'll have to go to plan B. It only seems that way from our perspective. Well, what happens in true revival? I want to spend a few minutes now talking about what took place in Nineveh that is universal when it comes to real spiritual awakening. Because in an awakening, there are many people converted. We, if you're a Christian here today, you have experienced conversion. These things that I speak of will apply to you personally. You will be able to relate to them. In an awakening or a great revival like this, it happens on a mag magnificent scale and usually in a very short amount of time. First, we see illumination. When there's genuine spiritual awakening, our minds are illuminated in a new way. That was what happened in Nineveh. That morning that Jonah arrived, if you had been a, a mother or a father, you probably would have woken up that day and thought, this is just another normal day. They did not have spiritual awareness that they were under God's judgment. The God of this world, it says in 2 Corinthians 4, had blinded their minds just like he blinds our minds before we know Christ. They were unconcerned because they had a mistaken interpretation of their situation. I love that phrase, 
I got that from someone else. I don't remember who. A mistaken interpretation of their situation. Do you ever mistake your situation? I have a friend. I've not seen him in a long time, but he was working at a job, and he had an annual review with his employer. And he left that review, and he thought it went real well. And he went home, and his wife said, how did the review go today? He said, well, I really think it went well, real well. And she said, well, tell me what they said. And he said, well, they said this and this and this. And she looked at him and said, you're getting ready to lose your job. And he did. He was fired. You talk about a mistaken interpretation of your situation, and that's what the Ninevites had. They thought, we're fine. There's no problem here. And yet through Jonah's words, God's word floods into their hearts and minds with alarming power, and they realize they are under divine judgment, and they cry out to God for mercy. Perhaps they prayed the similar prayer to what the man in Jesus' parable prayed in the temple, God be merciful to me, a sinner. By the end of that day, at least those who'd heard, that was the expression of their heart. What brings this about? What brings someone to a point of going from darkness to illumination? Jesus says that is the work of the Holy Spirit. We cannot will ourselves into that condition. It is the Holy Spirit who illuminates our minds. He awakens us to our true condition, the true state of our hearts, and we find ourselves convinced and convicted of our sin, just like the men, the thousands on the day of Pentecost after Peter had preached. It says in Acts chapter 2, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Before the sermon, they probably thought they were fine. Now, after the sermon, their eyes have been opened. Their minds have been illuminated by the Holy Spirit to their condition. Paul said, the Apostle Paul, that he had been sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes. He didn't mean that he had power to do that personally, but that the gospel with the power of the Holy Spirit would do so. Now, all this is called illumination. Illumination exposes the need of our hearts. It shows us the sin in our lives that we probably were oblivious to before. But it also brings us comfort and healing because it points us in the way we should go. And that leads us to the second aspect, and that is conviction. The first is illumination. The second is conviction. Verse 3, chapter 3, verse 5 says, The people of Nineveh believed God. They did not put their trust in Jonah. He receives almost no attention through this. He was just the bearer of the message. They were convinced and they were convicted of their spiritual danger. Now, what would Jonah have preached? I think Jonah would have preached the law. The law that says God created us to know us. He made us in his image. But we have all sinned. We have broken God's law. And the punishment for that is death. And God will by no means clear the guilty. We are under his wrath. He must punish our sin, and there's nothing we can do on our own to overcome that. He also was a living example of a man who had faced God's judgment. He is coming, in a sense, having, as Jesus said, he would become a sign. He was a sign to them of a one who literally, and very much, had been dead. For three days and was back from the dead, so to speak. And so he was very knowledgeable of the judgment of God. Someone has said, it is very unlikely that others will be convinced of their spiritual danger if we are not convinced of it. If you really don't think that this is real, 
If you really don't think there's a life after death and there's heaven or hell, if you try to talk to someone about trusting Christ and yet you're not convinced of it, the odds of them being convinced of it are almost um, non-existent. With third aspect, we see illumination, we see conviction, we see a spiritual grieving or mourning. The people declare fast, they put on sackcloth, the king rises from his throne, and he himself sits in the ashes. Together, corporately, they all call urgently upon God. We believe even said with the animals not to eat or drink, so that there was a corporate effort. We are going to give our full effort to crying out to God with hopes that he will not bring this calamity upon us. They wanted a change in lifestyle. They wanted an opportunity to demonstrate that they were serious in giving up their evil ways and their violence. They experienced what the Corinthians later experienced when it says in 2 Corinthians 7, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through it. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So that illuminating power of the Holy Spirit brings conviction and, and, uh, uh, of our condition before God and their spiritual grieving over that. And at the same time, this grief is not sink us down to despair, but it turns us now to the gospel. And so that brings us to the last part, and that is faith and repentance. Real repentance is more than just human effort to change. You can make changes in your life all day long that are not necessarily repentance. But it is a turning from trusting in ourselves and going our own way to turn toward God. And it's matched with faith. Now, these people, they knew very little. This is the non-covenant crowd. They don't know the promises of God. They've not had the words of the prophets. They've not had God's revelation to them. And so they know very little. They are strangers to the covenant. But they hope that God had sent this Jewish preacher to them, that the God who sent him might also be a God of mercy and a God of love. And so they throw themselves helplessly helplessly on God's character. And that's why that last verse, that verse 10, records God's gracious response. When God saw it, how they had turned from their evil way, he relents of the disaster that he had planned. Nineveh had been saved. Awakening had come. Repentance had been shown. If you are in Christ, you will meet these people in heaven. Now, I started by saying this chapter should give us hope for revival and awakening in our day. And I I wrote down several things this week that I, I see in this passage that I think have application and give me hope. One is... The revival in Nineveh, the awakening, was not man-centered. Uh, it was the message preached through a messenger, but Jonah is not the focus of attention. There's no personality-driven effect uh, of this message. It is God-centered. Second, it was not restricted to one class of people. It says from the lowest to the highest. It was not just for the poor underclass. It was not just for the wealthy influencers of the day. It it cut across all classes, so to speak. Third, this awakening resulted in real change. Now, what might that look like today in, in Macon, Georgia? 
I have, uh, I'm not a great student of a revival from church history, but I've, I probably read as much as any uh, average student about revival and awakening in history. It's been an area of interest of mine for over 30 years. And so when we read about the revivals, like in the Bible, at Pentecost, or, or here in Nineveh, or in the church history with the, the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, uh, and, and then in Germany with Martin Luther, and in our own colonial America with the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening, and then in the 1857 to 58, the Third Great Awakening, which is also called the Prayer Meeting Awakening that many people say was the most powerful of the three. But on a national level, there has been no awakening since 1858. There have been pockets. It's like when you're at the beach and you see a storm out on the ocean. There have been little storms here and there at places that do have the marks of real awakening. But on a large scale, there's not been anything here since 1858. So what would it look like? Well, if that were to happen in 2012, what is our date? July the 8th. Every day, every week as we would gather, there would be stories of conversions not only individuals, but families, maybe entire neighborhoods, entire groupings of people. And it would not be credited to any human preacher. It would be across Bible-believing denominational lines. That's been true in the past as well. Even though it may begin in one church that may be a Dutch Reformed church like it did in New York City in 1857, but then almost immediately it's in Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Wherever the gospel is preached, conversions would be almost exclusively, conversations would be almost exclusively about the things of God. You would not be here, you would not want to talk about things that you normally want to talk about, whether sports or interests or anything. It would, it would be about the things of God. There would be spontaneous prayer individually and in small groups and then in larger groups. There would be spontaneous outpourings of confession of sin because of the strong sense of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. There would be mass outpourings of thanksgiving and praise to God for the joy of sins forgiven. You would find in yourself and in others an insatiable hungering and thirsting for the Word of God, to read it, to hear it, to study it. There would be a sense of timelessness in our public gatherings of prayer and worship. There would be a strong sense of eternal matters, and the hours would seem like minutes or seconds. And I give you some of the paraphrase of what happened. I could give you story after story, but for the sake of time, I'm only going to give you one of what happened in New York City at the beginning of the prayer movement awakening in 1857. Uh, things were going on in Canada. And in various states, Columbia, South Carolina, with the Zion Church, where John Gerardo was, was a pastor, uh, to Natchez, Mississippi, to a number of other places. In New York City, and there seemed to have been an awareness of people were praying for awakening all around the country. In October of 1857, the, the, the economy of the United States pretty much collapsed because of the bank collapse in October. But earlier that year, just a few weeks before that, Jeremiah Lamphere, he was a 48-year-old businessman turned lay city missionary, 
He gave out these pamphlets to, to business owners in downtown New York City saying that he was going to begin a prayer meeting at a Dutch Reformed church building on Fulton Street on a certain date. The date he began was September the 23rd, and it was a Wednesday, and the plan was to meet each Wednesday from 12 until 1 for prayer. He went that first day on September the 23rd. At noon, he was the only man there. At 12.30, six others came. So at the end of that hour, six or seven men had gathered for prayer. Now, the next Wednesday, 20 men gathered. And then the Wednesday following that, there were between 30 and 40 businessmen that prayed. But the meetings were very encouraging and very beneficial, and so they decided, let's meet every day, at least every weekday. And so the next day, that Thursday, the crowds began to increase. The next Wednesday, October 14th, was the day of the financial collapse. And over, I read this in his Christian History magazine, over a hundred men came that day, and many of them came under conviction and professed their faith in Christ for the first time. By mid-November, now it's a month later, more rooms were needed, and the noontime prayer meetings were attracting 10,000 businessmen who were confessing sin and coming to faith in Christ. I've read account after account of where businesses between 12 and 1 shut down in New York because the owners were going to these prayer meetings. There are many, many more stories, and I urge you to read about that. And that leads me to my last observation, and that is that the revival in Nineveh, the awakening came to a very needy but a very unlikely place. And I would say this, I think the United States is a very needy but very unlikely place for awakening to occur. And I say this because today, and I love America, and I'm going to make a few statements, and they are my opinion and my opinion only. And I am not pessimistic, and I love my country, but it seems impossible that we will ever see major influencers in our culture really committed to Christ. Much less to see the masses of the 250 to 300 million people coming to faith in Christ. Think, and here's why I say this. Think of the largest influential area in America is higher education. In higher education and academics, and, I, and you can tell me later, because some of you will think there is an answer, but is there one major university in all 50 states, is there one major university which honors traditional Christianity and teaches biblical ethics? Now, I know there are a number of newer Christian schools that you could say, yes, there are, Christian colleges, and some even call themselves Christian universities. But I am talking about major established universities where the majority of our college population goes. Is there even one that you would say honors traditional Christianity and teaches biblical ethics? Think of the faculty. When you think of those on university faculties, and most of I attended the University of Alabama. I assume many of you, those who graduated from college, you, you probably went to, to public, large schools for the most part. And you think about those faculties. How many are not only committed Christians personally, but they teach in the area of their discipline from a biblical point of view? When I was in college, in the dark ages, I could have named one. He taught, he taught economics. 
the ratio to total faculty would be distressingly small. Think at the University of Georgia. I believe Fritz Schaefer still teaches, is that right? Professor of theoretical chemistry, one of the most honored professors living today. He has lectured all over the world. He's been nominated for the Nobel Prize five times. He taught at 18 years at UC Berkeley before he came to the University of Georgia. He's spoken here from this pulpit before. And what's he, one of maybe, what, a handful? Maybe two handfuls? When he was at Berkeley, he was probably one in a thousand. What about the media? The major outlets of television and newspapers and magazines. Can you think of any where biblical Christianity is not a target for derision? You may say, well, I can think of one. Well, to a certain extent. People who believe like we believe, like we profess, like the things we affirmed in those catechism questions earlier, we are a mocked, derided minority. And I'm optimistic. I mean, I really am. But it seems impossible. Here Jonah preaches, and from the greatest to the least, there's faith and repentance, and there's contrition. Why? It's because of the power of the gospel to change hearts. What about Hollywood? I don't even need to talk about the hostility of the entertainment industry where there seems to be almost no Christian influence at all. Oh, I give money, and some of y'all have, to Larry Poland's ministry that works with Hollywood executives and so forth. So there are Christians working behind the scenes. But that is a drop in the ocean. What about our own city? I would say about our area that the great mass of the people are indifferent and distracted and just really don't have any interest in biblical Christianity. That's my personal opinion. When I compare this, when I compare what I see with what I read about from awakenings that have taken place like in Jonah 3. Now here I want to end on a positive note. If we only observe the present spirit of the age, we will assume that we are just a shrinking minority and we will never influence the masses, or the powerful. But we see here in Nineveh that God, through the power of the gospel, is able to bring them to conviction and repentance. And it's a repentance so authentic that God sees it as real and he withholds his judgment. So take heart. When the Apostle Paul walked into ancient large cities like Rome with nothing a power except the gospel. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel can pierce hearts. The gospel can bring illumination and conviction and people to understand and put their faith in Christ. What happened once can happen again. And if it does, it won't be comfortable because these meetings would change as far as conversions and how would I feel if some of you began weeping loudly during the pre? How would you feel if I did? And so the very thing I pray for, I wonder if I'm ready for. But we should pray that he will come and that he would visit our city and our nation and our world with true awakening. Let's pray together. Father, we've seen the power of your gospel in our own lives that brought us from death to life. We put our faith in Jesus, and we will see these people from Nineveh one day. And we pray that you might, by your mercy and only for your glory, that you might bring awakening to our area, to our nation.
true spiritual awakening, not prompted, not programmed, not finessed by any human effort, but just by the sheer testimony of the power of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.